Welcome to the inaugural episode of Sip in Politics. I'm Carla Marie Davis. And I'm Joy Malanza. And again, this is our first episode of our podcast. It's been a year in the making. So we're super excited to share our thoughts with you on many different topics. Now, we are in midterm season. So we thought, what better way to start this off than by talking about voting. Yes. Being in the midterm election cycle, it's shown a spotlight once again on this growing disillusionment with voting. Mm -hmm. You know, one of the dominant narratives in leftist spaces Mm -hmm. is that we should fully divest from electoral politics. That voting doesn't matter. Voting doesn't matter. Don't do it, girlies. So we just wanted to have a conversation discussing sort of the duality of the power and limitation of voting. Exactly. And some action items on how voting can actually help you and why it does matter at the end. So stay tuned for that. For those of you who are listening to us on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, you might not know that we have these beautiful cocktails sitting right in front of us. But if you're watching us on YouTube, you can probably see them. And if you're wondering how we made it, keep watching and we'll show you a little tutorial. And of course, if you're listening on Spotify, go to our YouTube page and you'll see a tutorial on how we made this beautiful red cocktail. So there are a few different drivers of the apprehension around voting. One of the main ones Mm -hmm. is the frustration that folks have with Democrats at the national level. People will say things like, you know, we have presidency, we have Mm -hmm. control of Congress. And yet, what do we have? Nothing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, especially with the Roe news, a lot of people are frustrated that Roe v. Wade was never codified Mm -hmm. and protected from this reversal. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that has a lot of people feeling like, well, if I go to the ballot box and I vote and I donate to these Democrats, they're doing nothing um, in Washington, D.C. But you'll learn that that is actually a sort of a fallacy in some ways. We'll talk about that later. And let's stay there for a moment Mm -hmm. because on paper, Democrats have control over the Senate. Mm -hmm. But there are two people, Manchin and Cinema, who consistently act as roadblocks and barriers to passing anything. Every single time. They do that like it's their job. And not only that, but when you actually look at the count of Democrats in the Senate, there's only 48 actual Democrats in the Senate. There's two independents who tend to vote with the Democratic Party, but they're not Democrats. They're independents. So now when we have Manchin and Cinema not acting in the best interests of the Democrats, then we technically only have 46 seats in the Senate. A regular majority is 50 votes. We only have 46 Democrats. Now think about the filibuster pause here. Let's talk about what a filibuster is before people get confused. So a filibuster is essentially a mechanism that allows Senate representatives to debate a bill in perpetuity. It could go on forever in theory. So that's how a lot of Republicans have killed a lot of bills by preventing it from even going to legislative floor because they're constantly arguing about it. And this is how a lot of uh, Southerners would actually prevent civil rights legislation from being passed back in the 60s. They would just filibuster it to death. Now, what happens to break a filibuster, you can get 60 votes. If you get 60 votes, you can break the filibuster and push legislation forward. But what did we just say? We don't even have the 50 votes for a regular majority. And unfortunately, the mechanics behind that legislative action is not necessarily something that, you know, many people pay attention to or aware of. And so that can lead to sort of an incomplete view of what's happening in Washington. Now, this is not to give cover to corporate and conservative-leaning Democrats who are certainly not chomping at the bid to enact the types of ledge that we'd like to see. But I do think that that context is important. And I want to talk to the leftists who say that the Democrats have done nothing to codify Roe. Back in May, they tried, but they couldn't get the majority. 
um, because of mansion and cinema, like <laughs> Carla said. And they're trying again. So Biden essentially has been trying to get enough of a vote to remove the filibuster or to suspend it temporarily so that Senate members can vote on uh, codifying Roe. So this will require two things. It will require 60 votes to end the filibuster temporarily. And then once that is gone, then it will switch over to only needing 50 votes to pass a bill codifying Roe. Manchin and Cinema have literally already, just a couple hours ago, said, we're not going to help you with this. So when we say Democrats aren't codifying Roe and then turn that into we shouldn't vote, it means that you're skipping the steps of understanding exactly how the Senate works. And like Carla said, the mechanisms are really important before we throw in the towel and say it's completely useless. Agreed. And another common refrain in these leftist circles is that voting is not liberatory. Therefore, we should not participate. Fully divest, right? And I think a lot about this quote from ta Coates. It was in, I believe, the 2020 Vanity Fair September issue, and he was the guest editor. He says, voting is civic hygiene, both essential and insufficient. And I think that that so perfectly characterizes that duality of the power and limitation of voting. And if we reorient our perspective of the function of voting away from being liberatory, but simply being a strategic choice within the contours of a fundamentally flawed system that allows us to protect rights, to improve the material conditions for people, right? To shape agendas while we are on a parallel track building out the infrastructure, the organizational infrastructure to be able to realize this more just world that we want to see. I think that that's a more realistic view of the purpose of using this tool. I love that. And I think a lot of people need to adopt that perspective because yes, it's true that voting isn't going to liberate us. We know that and that's not its function. I don't think any serious leftist truly believes that's its function, but it will prevent us from going backwards. So for example, now that Roe has been overturned, a lot of the work that organizers are going to have to be doing is work that has already been done in the past. We had this right before, but now we're going to have to go back and cover ground that had Roe not been overturned, we wouldn't have been covering going forward. We would be able to gain more wins. So voting can be a mechanism of protecting what is currently here in the now. And this is going to be controversial. I'm ready. <laughs> Sometimes keeping the status quo is enough of a an incentive because if the other option is to slide into fascism, I would prefer keeping the status quo. So even if voting allows us just to keep the status quo, that is preferable over the worst of the worst. Absolutely. And the thing to keep in mind as well is we're not saying that electoral politics is the end all be all, right? Voting is just one tool in the toolbox. Mm -hmm. We can couple that with other types of resistance and other types of actions, direct action, sustained protest, community organizing, all of those things. Mm -hmm. But in the here and now, there are people that are directly impacted mm -hmm. by the consequences of not having leadership in place that most closely aligns with us. Exactly. And especially at the local level. And I love that you mentioned um, protesting, because let's talk about protesting for a second. When we're in the streets protesting and chanting and asking for demands, those demands can only be fulfilled through legislation. So we need somebody on the inside who's listening to us, empathetic to our cause, mm -hmm. and is able to push for those bills. There is no other way to realize those demands other than through legislation. There's literally no other way to do it. So 
decoupling protesting from electoralism is always a very strange thing in my mind because they have to go hand in hand. We can do both. We're capable of complex thought. We're capable of complex action. And we each have a role to play. Like we're not all going to be doing the same thing. Some of us are going to be on the ground organizing. Some of us are going to be working campaigns, right? There's room for all of us in the fight. We're going to show up differently. But the point is understanding that it takes a holistic approach to create change. Mm -hmm. And part of that is voting. Exactly. And, you know, the leftists who, I don't want to say anger me the most, but frustrate me the (laughs) most. Talk about it, girl. Let's get into it. (laughs) Let's get into this. Are the leftists who are super anti-voting, but then I see them circulating a petition. And let me tell you something about petitions. Petitions can be helpful in terms of um, moving the Overton window. So, So the Overton window is defined as sort of what is socially and social politically acceptable to the masses at a particular given time. So for example, under Trump, the Overton window shifted right, where more conservative rhetoric that was more hateful or racist or whatever um, was more acceptable in the public arena. Mm-hmm. And now it's sort of shifting back, but also shifting right again. So it shifts a lot. So petitions can be helpful for that, for shifting the Overton window to helping people realize that, oh, we don't stand for this anymore. So we're petitioning against it. You can also use petitions um, to remove an elected official. So you can like petition against them. But that's a different mm-hmm. conversation altogether. I'm talking about the petitions that are like, sign this to end world hunger. And I stare at those petitions and I'm like, are you serious? <laughs> Is this serious? Right. Voting does nothing but sign this petition. And to add to that, just as a brief aside. So I worked in political consulting when I graduated college with my fashion design degree, which is a story for another time. But there is another common action that people push. I want to be careful about discouraging people from participating in this way. But if you're looking to reach out to a politician, an elected official, in order to urge them to do something, to pass some piece of legislation, whatever it is, there are opportunities to do so through automated means, right? You enter your name, enter your email address, enter your address, whatever it is, and it will send an automated message to your elected official. Now, that is the easiest way. It takes the least amount of time. And if you have absolutely no time, absolutely go ahead and do it. But for those of you who do have a little bit more time, I would definitely encourage you to do so manually because all those emails are sent out with the same keyword or the same subject line. So all they have to do is search for that keyword and filter it out of their inbox. They don't even look through it. They scroll right past those emails. That's so heartbreaking. It's, it, yeah, it's a shortcut <laughs> that you know can be good. And it's good to, again, like to see the salience of an issue. They can see the numbers of people, but they they can so easily disregard it. Mm -hmm. Especially if all those voices don't translate to them potentially losing their seat in the next election. So if you're not going to show up to the poll and threaten to remove this person from office, if they don't do what you want, then they don't care. They're going to get their seat back. I will say this. There is one place where this can have a little bit more of a direct impact, and that is at the local level. And that's because there is pretty much no engagement at the local level. Mm -hmm. So any activity at like your city council member's office or something that will catch their eye. That is actually a really good point. And you're right, because local elections are something that we talk about on our own platform separately a lot. Um, So, of course, that's going to be something that's really, really important. And, you know, interestingly enough, And unfortunately enough, local elections are usually attended by older, whiter, conservative, affluent constituents. They're the ones who show up. They know what's at stake. So they'll always be right there 
as soon as the polls open and they're casting their ballots to turn back time. Your landlords are consistently showing up. The rank and file police officers are consistently showing up. Police union heads are consistently showing up. They understand the value Mm -hmm. of showing up in these elections. And when we sit them out, we concentrate the power into the hands of such a small group of people that are not representative of us to choose our representatives and by extension, shape the policies that have the most direct impact on our lives. Mm -hmm. That's not something that we can afford to do. Exactly. And actually, you know, Have you seen that paper that came out? I'm not sure exactly when, but people keep citing it um, that some researchers found that legislation doesn't reflect the will of the people. And people have been taking that and running with it in terms of using that as a means of saying that, see, voting doesn't matter. It never mattered. Don't do it. But what is the alternative? Now, there's the leftists who think the alternative is to petition, or not to petition, but to want to burn things down, to let things get so bad that people have no choice. When the people have no food, they'll eat the rich. Uh That's sort of the quote. I'm probably misquoting it. But a lot of leftists really desire that and foam at the mouth thinking about that. Accelerationism. (laughs) (laughs) And the thing about it, too, is that it's heavily based on the assumption Mm -hmm. that on the other side of this revolution is socialism. But there's a very good case to be made that on the other side of this revolution is fascism. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So I'm glad that you brought that up because this is a phenomenon called white terror, red terror. So what this means is that oftentimes after the red terror, which is sort of the revolutionary spirit that the working class take on in order to depose the bourgeoisie. Um, This sort of got coined amidst the French Revolution. A lot of historians have coined this phenomenon as the Red Terror. It's often followed up by something called the White Terror, which is the backlash of the bourgeoisie to quash revolutionary spirit. And often that backlash is not only severe, it is brutal, it is exacting, it is fascistic. And it sometimes doesn't return things to the status quo, but takes them even further, 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 further into fascism. When we look at the revolutions that took place in the Arab Spring, not all countries have gone back to normal or even progressed. I think the only successful country was really Tunisia. Syria, as you can see right now, is in a constant state of political upheaval. Libya's done. But yet you want a revolution. And do you know what would happen if other capitalist countries saw Americans revolting. Talk about it. They would be incentivized to squish that. You know, think about this. A lot of countries, when they look at, for example, what happens um, with the occupation of Palestine, won't speak out about it because they know that it will instigate the own separatists in their own country. Like in Spain, for example, if other countries see people from the United States having a successful revolution, they're going to join each other with a military industrial complex to actively squash that because it will help revolutionize or uh, radicalize so many other people who've been wanting to revolt. Yeah. So the revolution is not giving, you know, getting girls, let's go revolt. Exactly. It's not something that happens from 3 to 5 p.m. on a Saturday, Mm -hmm. right? (laughs) And like you said, there's a very real cost to revolution. It's years of bloodshed, years of terror. It's the cost is human life. Mm -hmm. 
And who do you think bears the brunt disproportionately of this violence? It's not the sea of faces that you see on the internet loudly advocating for revolution. And by the way, a lot of those people, they are not applying the same amount of energy Mm -hmm. to organizing in their community. They're not on the ground building out, you know, mutual aid and, you know, infrastructure for care. Mm -hmm. They're really not about it. They like the idea of revolution. That's it. It's it's cosplaying. It's cosplaying. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. Speaking of cosplaying, for our YouTube viewers, you're probably wondering why our cocktails all of a sudden turned blue. Enter the blue wave. So it's another cocktail and we're going to have a recipe as well that you can follow along and switch over with us if you'd like to. And now we're going to be talking about some things that you can do this midterm election season. So... Midterms are coming up, and for many people who are already engaged in electoral politics, they've already voted in their primaries. There's a couple more primaries going on, but then we also have the general in November. And do you remember how I was talking about needing 60 votes for the filibuster and then 50 votes for regular majority, but Democrats don't really have those amount of votes um, because they don't have enough seats? This midterm election is going to be so essential to getting those seats. The more seats we can flip, the better, because that will allow Democrats able to get enough votes to potentially codify Roe. Now, I know Roe has already been overturned, but this can still happen if we get enough seats in the Senate. Absolutely. And just pivoting slightly away from Congress, many of the channels that shape our political understanding, whether that be our education system, whether that be the news, tends to hyperfixate on federal government, the importance of the presidency, the importance of Congress, the importance of Supreme Court seats. And that's, this is not to say that those seats aren't important. However, we have relegated state and local government to being of secondary importance when the reality is that it is our state and local government that has the most direct impact on our daily lives. We spoke earlier about how the electorate that consistently shows up to vote in those races tends to be older, Mm -hmm. more conservative, wider than the overall population. And so it is really important just as we're tapping into these congressional races to make sure that we're paying attention to the races further down the ballot, right? Mm -hmm. You mentioned Roe. Mm -hmm. Some of us in post-Roe America woke up in states where abortion is legal and protected. We are currently in the beautiful state of New York, and that is a reality here. That did not happen by osmosis or by divine intervention. That mm-hmm. happened because our state lawmakers passed legislation to that end. So it is critical that we are paying attention to these races. And then after the fact as well, making sure that we're keeping up with what our electeds are doing. Period. And one thing to remember is that Roe has been overturned at the federal level, meaning abortion rights are now at the state level. So your state electeds are literally going to decide life or death for many, many, many people. And not just, you know, New York being able to have abortion rights and protecting those abortion rights, but now a lot of blue states have put into place laws that will allow people to be able to travel here for abortions, pay for that process, the service, um, pay for the transportation, even accommodation. But again, now we're looking at those same legislators having to pass enough budget to fund those efforts. So it's literally always tied back to the legislative floor, which is why, again, we need co-conspirators in the halls of the legis- 
Leecher. Leecher, thank you. <laughs> to work on our behalf. Circling back to New York's legislative action on Roe. So in addition to codifying Roe into state law, they actually took it a step further this past week, actually. Our Governor Kathy Hochul called lawmakers back to Albany to work on a separate issue. But in addition to that, they took the extra step to approve a proposal that would enshrine abortion protections into the state constitution, which essentially makes it harder to overturn with changes in leadership and things like that. That's amazing. And that's what all blue states should be doing. And this actually is a perfect segue into a blue state that could have abortion rights at stake. So in Pennsylvania, abortion is legal up to 24 weeks. That said, it's not actually protected by any laws. So it's completely vulnerable. Now, I've been seeing a lot of attorney generals around the country saying that they won't criminalize people who get abortions and who are also ready to protect them. Attorney generals are probably some of the most important elected officials, which we can always talk about later. But that's what a lot of uh, attorney generals are doing, including Josh Shapiro of Pennsylvania. Now, here comes Doug Mastriano, Republican senator running for governor, who pledges to do away with abortion if he's elected to office. Do you see why voting is important? I hope that's a yes. (laughs) Because imagine not voting, not showing up. Mastriano gets into office. Abortion's gone in Pennsylvania. Then what? And I would also like to highlight once again for our New York girlies. This is not a New York centric podcast, but we do both live here. (laughs) But I want to say that the same there is the potential for the same situation in New York. Our governor, Kathy Hochul, won the Democratic nomination for governor. But our Republican nominee for governor, Lee Zeldin, uh, very gleefully celebrated the overturn of Roe v. Wade. Mm-hmm. And so don't get too comfortable. We're not in the clear. And don't forget that also the state legislature has both Republicans and uh, Democrats, even in blue states. Mm-hmm. And any shift, especially with uh, redistricting, mm. any shift in a Republican majority or in, in a Republican governor, blue states have had Republican majorities in the state legislature and Republican governors. Mm-hmm. And boom, we're done. Mm-hmm. That's all it takes. That's all it takes. And knowing how Republicans are so fervent about abortion, they will show up for that one issue alone. Absolutely. So we have another example for you about abortion rights potentially being overturned at the state level. So Kansas. Back in 2019, the state Supreme Court protected abortion as a constitutional right for Kansas residents. Now... The primaries are coming up in August, and there's a ballot measure that will allow constituents to vote to overturn abortion rights in Kansas. What's a ballot measure? Literally what it sounds like, it's basically a piece of legislation that's left up to voters, and it'll appear, you know, during the election cycle, um, a lot of times these ballot measures have to be approved before they're ever on the ballot, but it goes to a chain of approval, gets on the ballot, and voters can literally choose to vote in favor or against it. So people in Kansas in the August primaries have the option to vote against protecting abortion rights. That's wild. If you don't show up to those primaries and you live in Kansas and you weren't planning to show up, this is your sign to show up. Make sure your voter registration is up to date, everything. Now, there's two people running for governor. So we have Derek Schmidt and Laura Kelly, current governor. Laura Kelly is obviously in support of Roe, but Derek Schmidt is not. And you do not want a scenario where 
Schmidt gets into office and this ballot measure goes through because that was a disaster for a lot of people who are capable of being pregnant in Kansas. It really cannot be overstated the importance of showing up for these races. We know that they're not seen as as sexy as national level races. They don't receive as much coverage and they don't have as many eyes on them, Mm -hmm. but they are perhaps the most consequential races. So regardless of whether there is a president at the top of the ticket, it is imperative. It is critical that we show up. And I think something else just to further punctuate that is Mm -hmm. that while the primaries are still going on, please show up to the primaries because the primaries are where you're deciding who represents the party. We don't just want to vote for Democrats in November. We want to vote for progressive Democrats. A lot of progressives run in the primaries, Mm -hmm. but then uh, white, affluent, older constituents vote for the most conservative Democrat to represent the Democratic Party. Then in November, we're left with two right-wing choices, basically, because you can have right-wing Democrats. And then, you know, in... Hi, Eric Adams. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. He's basically a Republican. And then what do we hear? We hear, oh, we only have two poor choices to choose from, and I'm not choosing the lesser of two evils. I'm not voting. But we could have made a different decision in the primaries. Like, Jumani Williams, I'm so sad that he did not get the Democratic nomination for governor of New York. People just didn't show up. Yeah. So now let's talk action items. Yes. You can take action to do the things that we talked about in this episode. So outside of this podcast, I run an organization. It's so tiny and it's literally powered by like 15 of us. So really small. But it's called the down ballot. And what we do is provide information about upcoming elections from a leftist perspective. We've been doing a bunch of different um, election coverage, but it's been on a smaller scale. And this midterms, we're covering a couple of races, but not all of them, just because we don't have the ability to do so. So if you come to the website and you don't see your state, that's why. Um, But that said, we have a couple of other things that you can do, even if your state isn't being covered. We have a learning library where you can go and look through different topics. So if you want to learn about what is neoliberalism, you can learn through the different topics there. Um, We're also building some other cool things coming up. Now, if your state is being covered on the website, you can just filter to your state and you'll see all the information there. Now, beware. You guys keep crashing our website. (laughs) So... (laughs) If you see anything that you don't like or any feedback or it's not loading, just give us some feedback and we'll get back to you. That means that it's heavily foot trafficked, (laughs) meaning that it's a great source of information. No, but seriously, it is a wonderful source of information. Joy and I actually initially connected through TikTok. I was working with her on some content for the down ballot. It is a trusted source for a leftist perspective on down ballot races. Thanks, Carla. That's so nice. And yeah, we're trying to be more robust and we will give our opinion. We're not neutral. We will say we don't like this person or we do. So unapologetically. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) And to add to that, you know, coupling an electoral strategy, it's important that we are after we're electing these amazing progressives and leftists into office, that we are keeping abreast of what they're doing legislatively. So I would encourage us all to just become familiar with who our state and local reps are. (laughs) Maybe go to their house and egg yolk their windows. I don't know. (laughs) You didn't hear that from us. You did not hear that from us. (laughs) 
you know, that's a great way to keep up with what your electeds are doing to make sure that we're holding them accountable after we put them in office. Another shameless self plug. I have a TikTok account at Carla X Marie with two E's. And it is specific to New York City politics and policy. If you want to follow along with legislative action, advocacy orgs and things like that, come on and join our community over there. It's a good time. She's an amazing source of information. And that's literally how we met. So, of course, (laughs) TikTok bringing the people together. (laughs) Um, If you're watching this on YouTube, we'll have the links in our bio. Yes. We hope you enjoyed this first episode. And we hope to see you back here every single Monday. Yes. Cheers.